Will you stand up on your feet? Meet me in Matthew chapter 4. I do need to say this to you too while you stand. I don't know who this message is for. This is so, um, so interesting to me. In my devotional reading this week, I ran across this passage and literally jumped off of my planned uh, schedule into this. It's a word about temptation. And um, I didn't want to preach it, Brett Eric, because I know the people I preach to. I know this church. Y'all ain't tempted with nothing. I done been around you. Y'all the most spiritually strong people I know. You ain't stuff come walking right in front of you. You know, Pastor, I'm too godly for that. And I've been in Bible class with some of y'all. I didn't talk, and I'm and I'm talking about across the generations. And it says that like that don't bother you. Nope, that don't bother me at all. Um, but then it hit me like two days ago that if Jesus got tempted, then my guess is some of y'all in here wrestle with temptation and so I just want to talk I, I know we ain't in the mood for a bunch of yelling and hollering I ain't gonna do all that we I just want to talk to y'all today about overcoming temptation uh, look at this at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4 when you got it say I got it if you don't have it yet say hold on all right good job everybody's on the same page today let me all right here we go then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's enough right there. I'm going to finish reading it, but that, that really is enough. I'll explain to you in a moment why that's enough. And after he had fasted 40 days, how many of y'all have fasted for 40 days? You ain't ate nothing for 40 days. Raise your hand. You ain't ate nothing for 40 days. Bless your ministry. Yep. That's what I thought. Thank y'all for being honest. It um, ain't my testimony, Pastor Charlie. That's what you're saying. After he fasted for 40 days, I want you to feel this, and 40 nights. Now, the reason that Luke is saying and 40 nights is because he wants you and I to feel the totality of the day, that he didn't cheat on any part of the day. He then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, this is almost panoramic vision before movies have come about, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Y'all don't think Satan crazy. It, it, it's, this is proof right here. If you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, or in the original language, be gone Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Hallelujah. And serve him 
only, exclusively. And the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Somebody today needs to hear this word. Uh, you're tempted to do something and somebody around you doesn't even know you're tempted to do it. And you'd be ashamed to announce your temptation to someone. Can I urge upon you this word of encouragement today? Don't do it. Don't do it. What, whatever the solicitation is, don't give in. Now, if you feel like, hey, I'm here today, I'm not tempted by anything. Well, take this message, fold it up like a piece of paper, tuck it in your back pocket, and this week, pull it out when you need it. Because you're going to face a moment. I want to tag this text. I want to borrow a tag from HBO. I want to call this passage today, King in the Wilderness. You may be seated. I want to talk about King in the Wilderness. Jamal, Aaron, that title didn't do nothing for nobody yet. I was going to title this sermon, Be Gone, Satan, because I knew that that, like, that would resonate with y'all. Some of y'all from the hood, and you could appreciate that kind of language. Um, but I want to be slightly more sophisticated. So here's my slightly more sophisticated title, King in Wilderness. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you and praise you right now, and I ask of you for clarity of mind, concision of speech, and conviction of heart, that I may tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Hide me behind your cross, forgive me of my sin, and use me to preach your word in sincerity and in truth. I pray that beyond this, you will give your people listening ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Do these things, we pray. We'll be careful to give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the last 18 months of his life. He'd had an extraordinary rise to power. He'd literally become the voice of a prophet to this nation, a black Baptist preacher born in 1928 in the backwoods, as it were, of Georgia. Had now become the esteemed and highly regarded Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We have today, as we should, have rightfully made of him a kind of standing legend, one whom the world bows in renown to the tenor of his voice. He called our nation to her highest ideals. He read the riot act, as it were, in the shadow of the Lincoln Monument on the Washington Mall. When asked of by Whitney Young, and then uh, when questioned by the leaders of the NAACP, how many laws had he legislated to end segregation? His response was profound. He simply said, well, no laws, but I guess I've integrated a couple of hearts. He was a mighty man who, toward the end of his life, had began to speak out about the Vietnam War, and to call the nation that had become the wealthiest, the strongest, and the most powerful to actually do something good with its power and its might. And it alienated him. Roy Wilkins and others pushed him to the margins and actually berated him in the media and public. And this is what the producers of HBO called the series of his life, King 
in the wilderness. They, they are playing on a theme that says, life is lived one way when you're king on top, when you're sitting in the palaces and in the president's office. Life is lived with a certain kind of excitement and fulfillment and satisfaction when everyone regards you in high esteem. But what are you really like when the odds turn against you? When family and friends kind of disown you? When funding becomes scarce? And when you don't have what you once had? And they marked him in a double entendre. He was still king in the wilderness. I bet you that if Matthew, the gospel writer, were here this morning, and if he were to give us a label on top of what we know as Matthew chapter 4, he would call it king in the wilderness. Because you do know that every king is tested not by the measure of his might and popularity, but by the strength of his convictions in ignominy. This is where Dr. King uh, kind of mirrors to us a more modern demonstration of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel by way of canonical location, the fact that it is the first gospel of the New Testament is striking to us for ethnic, if not spiritual, reasons. Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as the king of the people of the Jews. Permit me to argue just for a moment if I can. I'm going to make my way to my point, but this is striking to me because when we leap from Malachi to Matthew, we jump centuries, hundreds of years. But it is as if God has not missed a beat between Malachi to Matthew as the new king who emerges on the throne in the Gospel of Matthew fulfills every Old Testament image and picture that was laid out from Genesis to Malachi. I mean, how astounding is that? It seems as if Matthew's favorite word is the word fulfilled. Jesus did this to fulfill the saying that is written. Jesus said this to fulfill the picture that was laid out. It is more than ironic, friends, that Matthew is the first gospel because Jesus fulfills the very kingly picture laid out for the anticipated Messiah of long ago. But he is no king. He can rule over no people if he cannot demonstrate that he is king over himself, that he can rule over himself. And so before the launch of his very public ministry that comes about in Matthew chapter 4, we see a Jesus who is not riddled by human passion. He is enticed, he is tempted, but he does not succumb to human temptation. I wish I had three or four honest people in church with me this morning because I could make my argument if I did. We all know something about temptation. It is no sin to be tempted. Although we are often shamed by our temptation. Am I right about that church? I mean, who here today wants to come to this pulpit, to this microphone, and I watched you even on Thanksgiving service and take the mic and tell the whole church what you've been tempted with? Could you imagine, Glenda, how that service would go? <laughs> what if you had to stand up in front of all of us and tell us what really tempted you? Could I tell you the truth? That would shock us. But might I say it a better way, a different way? Your temptation has shocked even you. 
Oh God, for a real church this morning. You've been sitting in the space looking at something and was shocked that you were tempted by what you saw. I mean, after all, you're not the kind of person to be drawn away by that. But the fact that that caught your attention, that ratchet, low life, hood, thuggism, grabbed you, and you refined and educated and dignified. That ain't the type of thing you do. Oh no, he's not your type, but he said something to you in a small shrill danced across your spine. And you said to yourself, my mama raised me better than this, but I can't believe that I'm attracted to that. And you'd never tell anybody because temptation kind of is accompanied by a sense of shame. But let me suggest to you early on, relax this morning, church. Ease up on me. There's no shame in temptation. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted. Temptation is the mere solicitation of enemy of the enemy toward the pleasures of sin. He's going to try to seduce you. And if you come to church and act like you are not eligible for seduction, I cannot help you from the word of God. You first have to be honest and say that your eyes want things that they're not supposed to have. Your flesh sometimes urges upon you a quest, a journey to grab, to touch what you're not supposed to touch. For those of you who graduated beyond that in life, that your eyes no longer bother you, your flesh no longer uh, plagues you. Maybe it is your ego that manipulates you. You're stuck in arrogance, spiritual pride, because you think you're better than what you actually are. There's no sin in being tempted. The sin is falling to the temptation. Now I know where I'm preaching this morning. I got at least 20 or 30 sinners in the church today who have given in to some temptation before. In fact, you say, if I had it to do all over again, Pastor Charlie, I would never do that again. Well, I want to equip you today. I want to give you, pass along to you from the hallways of scripture, a kind of remedy, uh, an analysis of temptation, and then an answer to temptation from the very life of Jesus Christ. And he shows us that though he is tempted, he is without sin. And those who trust him can face temptation and overcome sin just the same. Are y'all with me in this church? I want to argue this morning, first of all, toward the anatomy of temptation to try to diagnose how the enemy comes at us in powerful ways. The question that leaps from the pages off of pure assumption. I mean, without even having read the text again. The question that comes to the mind of the thoughtful reader is an assumption I've already made. Let me ask the question. How did Jesus get tempted? Oh, friends, read this passage theologically before you read it practically. This is Jesus, the very Son of God. He who knew no sin. You got you to go to discipleship hour. You got to get into a growth group to understand what I'm talking about. There is something distinctly different about Jesus. He wasn't born of a man's blood. And yet he is fully Human. He was sinless in every way. If we have 
a sinful Jesus, we have a fake salvation. He had to be without blemish, to be without stain in order to qualify as our Messiah. So if he is sinless, how does he get tempted? Because temptation is a lure to sin. And, and our understanding of temptation is, is that we have to have an attraction to something that is wrong for us. And if Jesus is perfect, how does he have an attraction to something that is wrong for him? I, I want you to feel this because the first verses of chapter 4 are instructive to us. They explain to us how we can get caught up and taken by temptation, but how Jesus gives us the grace to overcome temptation. Here it is. Jesus was led to face temptation. You and I are lured into temptation. I wanted to say that a different way, but I, let me draw the distinction. Jesus was not led into temptation. He was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You and I are lured into temptation. Whoa, 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 Pastor Charlie, what is the distinction here? It is this, that Jesus has what scholars call the hypostatic union. He is fully God, 100% God, and fully man, 100% man at the same time. As a man, he understood the pride of the human ego. As a man, he understood the lust of weak flesh. As a man, he understood the draw of the eyes. But as God, he was the answer to his own temptation. As God, he was the captain of his own soul. As God, he was the satisfaction of his own desire. In other words, in order for temptation to work, you have to have a magnet on the inside of you that actually likes the sin that is in front of you. So you don't have to be led into temptation because you already like what you are tempted by. See, the reason you want to give into temptation is because there's something about the pleasure of sin that excites you. But the difference between you and Jesus is that there was nothing in him to make him want the sin that was laid out in front of him. So the Spirit of God had to lead Jesus into the wilderness so that he could be tempted by the devil. I wish y'all heard what I just said. There is something about Jesus that we don't see in anybody else in all of scripture. Jesus does something no other man did in scripture. Jesus faced the evil one and won. Y'all ain't listening to me here. Adam faced the evil one in the garden and he gave up and he lost. Noah faced the evil one in a tent and he gave in to Hennessy and got drunk. Moses faced the evil one in a rebellious people and got weary and threw stones at them when he should have been praying for them. Rahab faced the evil one in the red light district and started a midnight concierge service that has lasted for hundreds of years. David
David faced the evil one on the rooftop of the spring in Jerusalem and derailed his entire destiny. Job faced, Job's wife faced the evil one at the death of her children and abandoned faith in God. Solomon faced the evil one in strange women and it made the wisest man change gods. I wish I had somebody in here with me. Let me just talk to Kevin. He'll help me here. Y'all remember Harlem Nights when Red Fox is encountering that one sister whose nickname is Sunshine. And he said it must be some mean stuff to make a man change gods. Listen, as vile and as wretched as that sounds, I love the way y'all look at me. Like, like, oh, I can't believe you said that in the pulpit. That's the book of Solomon. That's the song of Solomon. It is that he ran into some stuff. And I'm trying to preach this as clean as I can. But this is why you ought to be careful with the stuff you fool around with. He ran into some stuff that made his heart go after strange gods. Jeremiah faced the evil one and cried himself to sleep. Jonah faced the evil one and fell into prejudice. And what can we say about Micah and Nahum and Abekah and Zephaniah and all of the others except that they all faced the evil one and fell. But Jesus is the only one who could face the evil one in a wilderness and defeat him. And here is the good news of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus won in the wilderness, he turns around and gives you his victory in Chicago. So that whatever you face, when your soul gets lonely, Whatever mountain you come across when the ground of your soul is dry, whatever wilderness you tunnel through, God is able to give you strength. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I wish I had some people who could just testify with me the Sunday after Thanksgiving that you didn't face some temptation and you didn't come through because you've had the grace of God. Um, to march you through. Now let me speak practically if I may. This text says something about where and when. You can feel something in this text about the impeccable timing of our enemy. Watch how Matthew gives us a word about where and when temptation comes in its greatest force. Then Jesus was led into the wilderness. One of the challenges I have from time to time is reminding us that the original Bible writers didn't write these accounts according to chapter and verse divisions. These are one long sweeping narrative of passages. And chapter 4 comes on the heels of chapter 3's major climactic experience. You, you know what happens at the end of chapter 3, right? It's a baptism like you've never seen before. Jesus is baptized by John in the River Jordan and stand there as you see Jesus walk into the water where others have traveled in before him except he's different from everybody around him and when he gets into that water John says behold the very Lamb of God it's as if John is saying, I should not be baptizing you, but you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, on with the plan, John. It's got to happen this way. I've 
got to come the same route that everybody else has come in order for God's glory to be seen in the world. And when John says, in obedience to the great God of heaven and earth, I baptize you now, my brother cousin, and I take you down into the liquid grave and I raise you up, not because you got to repent, but because it's got to happen this way. And when he lowers him down into that liquid grave and he lifts him up, stand back as the heavens open up. Here as a thundering voice comes from the clouds. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Watch as the spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove. And he is distinguished from every other person that came in line before him. And every other person that's coming in line from behind you. If y'all ain't listening to me in this church. What I'm trying to tell you is that there is something different about Jesus that God marks at his early baptism. He was mightily blessed. I, 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 I'm trying to tell y'all on the hills of a voice coming out of heaven saying this is the one. The very next thing that happens is the worst temptation you've ever seen. Now, let me pull a page from my own life. I hate to be biographical in my preaching. I really don't like to tell y'all my business, quite frankly. I love you, but I don't want you to know me like that sometimes. Um, but might I tell you, I know this is true. That when you've been mightily blessed, watch out. There's a mighty temptation coming your way. Y'all ain't listening to me in this show. When God's hand has come upon you publicly, majestically, magnificently, and openly, on the heels of that can often come an unparalleled spiritual experience of temptation. I wish I could tell you it were not the case. But everybody wants to stand up here from time to time. I go to these conferences and I get to preach at places and there are thousands of people and folk are taken by what happens and they want the platform and the stage. And I want to say to them, you don't want what you think you want. Oh, help me, Holy Ghost, preach to your people. Because sometimes the higher you ascend, the more public and visible God's blessing is upon your life. The more difficult it is to go to bed at night without having given in the sin. Watch, friends, the more God blesses you, the more vulnerable you become to the enemy's temptation. And I know you think that when God blesses me, I ain't never going to sin no more. When God gives me what I want, I'm not going to have those struggles no more. But can I get somebody in here to testify with me? The more you've been blessed, the more difficulty it seems like you've had to come across, the more elevated you have been, the harder the struggles have been. And the enemy does not play fair he ain't messing with you so long as ain't nothing happening in your life but when God starts to move in your life that's when the enemy shows up he tries to derail you I want to just talk if I can excuse me y'all I'm clapping for my own self that was some good preaching Charlie Dates blessed be the name of the Lord can I tell y'all something the enemy cannot destroy your life Hear me somebody, 
He ain't that strong to destroy God's plan over your life. But what the enemy can do is he can get you to destroy your own life. He can get you to ruin God's majestic and marvelous work. It takes one moment. It takes one moment. Somebody needs to hear what I'm saying today. I'm not preaching to make you happy. I'm trying to preach to help you. It takes one moment to destroy what you spent your entire lifetime building. And God is saying to somebody today, watch it when you feel like you ride and high. Be careful when you feel like the blessings of the Lord are everywhere around you. Because the enemy is close and looking to take you down. Might I suggest to you it's not only when, but it is where. He's in the wilderness. Look, look at the topography of the wilderness. I got to make my way through this. The, 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 the wilderness is a dry, arid, and lonely place. The weather is extreme. Nothing thrives there. I want to suggest to you, friends, that a wilderness is not only a geographical location, but the soul can face a season in the wilderness, too. The wilderness is a lonely place. It's, it's when you get to a point of isolation, when, when the garden of your soul is not watered as it should be, when you feel like nobody understands you. When you can't find a friend to identify with you. When, when the only escape you feel like you have because you're surrounded by lack is to drown yourself in some kind of substance that'll make you feel better. That's the wilderness. And watch yourselves, friends, when your soul gets to a place when you feel like you all by yourself. Watch yourself. When, when you cannot pray, when you have no appetite to read the word of God, when you're trying and you're trying and you come into church and everybody else around you seems to feel something, but you don't feel anything. That's the wilderness. And the enemy is often at his best work when you get in a space where your soul is dry, where you feel isolated. And I want to tell you that you can look at all of this and conclude like me that the enemy doesn't fight fair. But that's all right. That's the bad news of the text. The good news is that you got a strategy for overcoming temptation. And I want to run you through Jesus' strategy for overcoming temptation right through this passage this morning. And if you'll grab a hold to what Jesus is saying, I believe that today you'll be able to come out of something that's been holding you down. Listen, friends. The Proverbs writer said it this way, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Oh, hear me. A full soul loathes a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Y'all ain't being real with me. Let me, let me preach this. I, I discovered this, Sister Denise on Colette's. Instagram page last night. Too much time on social media this week. I shared it with, with Kirstie. Bread is a beautiful thing. 
Y'all ain't listening to me because you might be used to those Pillsbury Doughboy pop the can rolls um, or the Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuit rolls. And, and those are good, but they do not compare to a homemade roll. Oh, this, this is what I saw on Colette's spread of the Thanksgiving meal. It, have you ever sunk your teeth into a warm, homemade piece of bread? Where you had to wipe the chalk of the yeast from your lips. Where you swished the buttery crust from corner to quarter in your mouth. And you felt the lumping satisfaction hit your gut. Have you ever had that feeling? I, I know that some of us, we don't know how to make those kind of rolls. I don't know how to make them, but something comes over me when I get around them. I, I, I can hardly keep the saliva from oozing out of the side of my mouth. Bread is a beautiful thing, I tell you. Jesus knew that bread was a beautiful thing. He taught us to pray for bread in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. He told us that the Father knows that we need bread in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32. He promised us that when we seek God's kingdom first, all these things, including bread, would be added unto us. Jesus gave bread and fed the multitudes with those two fish and five crummy loaves. And then the Matthew tells us in chapter 25 that on the last day, God will inquire of us to find out if we gave bread to the hungry. And bread is a beautiful thing because if you don't eat, you can't live. And the question becomes, in this passage, did Jesus need bread? What good, let me ask you this, what good is a starving Messiah? How is he going to get to the cross if he dies of starvation before he can get to the cross? And how does he save us if he doesn't get to the cross? In other words, Jesus needed bread to live so that his life would get to the cross. The problem in this text where Jesus is confronted with the lure of turning stones to bread is not bread at all. Oh, you, you might like me have read this text all these years and say Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He's hungry. He eats bread. No problem. We're good. Bread is the problem. Bread is not the problem. Doubting God is the problem in this temptation. Listen to how it comes out. Satan says in verse 3, and the tempter came. Notice how the Bible speaks of the devil. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, if, if, if you, who God just said you were at the end of chapter 3, if, if what God said is true, then turn around and make these stones bread. The enemy's primary tactic in your life and in mine is to get us to doubt what God has said. I wish you heard me now. When your soul is hungry, hungry for affection, hungry for attention, hungry for achievement, 
hungry for direction, hungry for all kinds of things, you will start to doubt that what God said in the high place is true in the low place. If you really are who God says you are, then give a sign that proves that you are who God says you are. The implication is you ain't really who God says you are. But you can remove all doubt right now if you turn these stones to bread and prove that what God said about you is true. Listen, I'm almost in my seat when I tell you this. You and I are on dangerous grounds when we always need another sign, a deeper assurance than what God has already said as if what he said ain't enough. I'm afraid of people who need more than the Bible to prove that God loves them. I, I'm concerned about folk who need more than the cross of Calvary to demonstrate that God loves them. Well, can I give you a public service announcement, friends? If the cross of Jesus ain't enough, there is nothing else to prove that you are meaningful and significant to God. If the Bible ain't enough revelation, there is no more revelation. You don't need God to say more than what he has already said. How then, how then, Pastor Charlie, do I come out of this? Listen to what Jesus says. I'm trying to be devotional, not too preachy today, but y'all making me preach. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Underline that word, proceeds. It's a continual verb in the original language, which means that the word keeps on coming. It's a beautiful picture that shows God in conversation with his people. That God does not stop talking to us when we open his word. But that he perpetually fills and refills us until we can take no more. Listen, friends, if you are the kind of Christian who does not have a regular appointment with God, to sit before his feet and to hear him speak, then you will not experience every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The problem with many of us is that we only come to God and come to church when we feel like we need a word from God and crisis has struck. But might I tell you that the best time to open your Bible the best time to come to church is when you don't feel like you need the Bible or when you don't feel like you need the church. Because the more gas you put in your tank as life moves along, you can watch the clock. Trouble is coming. And when trouble comes, you can feast on the word that God has already spoken. I ought to have 20 or 30 more y'all who can testify with me. You heard God speak when life was calm so you can enjoy God when life got rocky. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I don't know a better commendation 
of application to give to you this morning on the heels of this movement other than to say, friends, have a daily time to meet with God. I felt God, I felt God prepare my soul for difficulty before it came. Simply by studying and reading and praying before him. Now listen, I don't mean one of those shot in the morning kind of prayers like you take a shot of espresso. But I mean sometime, maybe it's not right when you get up. Maybe it's right when you get to the office and you get there 30 minutes early and you sit there and you read through a passage and you pray it back so that your soul gets fed by the word of God. Because the enemy, the enemy will test you where you're weak. I, I'm trying to tell y'all here, Jesus is hungry. He wants bread and the enemy is pushing his buttons in his weak spot but can I tell y'all he don't play fair the enemy and this is what some of y'all need to hear I love it thank you God I love the way the scripture anticipates the crowd I'm gonna preach to because sometimes I preach to y'all preach to y'all and you look at me like oh man that, that ain't I don't you know ain't got no weaknesses I'm good that ain't no thing and some of y'all you've been in church so long it actually hurts the way you do church just to be honest with you because because these you've heard these passages so much that you feel like they don't mean anything but but watch this the enemy when he does not succeed at hitting you in your weak space will shoot at your strong space he actually moves on from talking about bread to tempting Jesus with the Bible. Y'all ain't in here with me today. You, you a Sunday school teacher. You a growth group leader. You work in discipleship. You've been in church for 30 years. You figure this out. When the enemy comes at you and says, you got faith. This, this is what the Bible says. Step out on it. Try it. Find out. And maybe, friends, we succumb more in the places we are strong than we do in the places where we are weak. I'm trying to tell y'all the enemy is a deceiver. One of my favorite activities with my wife's dad is to go fishing. For what it's worth, Brother Barry, I grew up in Morgan Park. There were no lakes and ponds to fish right by Morgan Park. Lake Michigan rather doesn't even invite me per se. There's nothing charming about it. So I avoided it for most of my life. But my in marrying this girl, her dad likes to fish, and so I would go fishing. A few problems with going to fish. One is when you don't know how to fish, you don't even understand the reel and the rod, what they're for. But I'm not gonna tell you I don't understand the reel and the rod. And so I've learned how to make up for deficiencies when I walk into a place of incapacity, I just watch what other people do. I just gave y'all something. You didn't even, you didn't even catch what I just gave you. I, I've seen this on TV. I know how this works. You grab the rod, you sling it back, you toss it out into the water, and a few moments later, you get a bite, you yank, and you caught a fish. Well, after doing that about four or five times, and nothing happening, her dad said to me, hey man, what are you doing? I said, I'm fishing. He said, no, bro, you ain't fishing. You ain't catching either. 
it, it turns out that I was throwing a naked hook into the water. Now, you, you already know, because some of y'all are far wiser than me. I didn't know. All I know is that the hook is what crashes the fish's mouth, yanks it out, and we good to go. I got all the equipment. I got everything around there. I got the know-how, but I'm not catching no fish. Reverend David said these words to me. Hey, hey, bud, uh, why don't we put a worm on that hook? I said, well, where I'm from, we don't play with worms. He, he, he says, no, no, Charlie. Fish are dumb, but they ain't crazy. They're they, they not going to just bite a hook. So what we do is we wrap the hook in what they like. And when they bite the worm, they actually chew the hook. It's the worm, not the hook, that catches the fish. I don't know if you are listening to me in this church yet. But let me suggest to you that the enemy is not going to come at you with something you think automatically won't get you. you you're too smart for that. You're, you're too wise for that. You're, you're too far advanced for that. And so what he does is he baits his lure. And for some of us, he doesn't bait the hook with carnality. He baits the hook with spirituality. You, you say, I don't see that in the text. I'm working this morning. Y'all just don't feel me. This Watch the Trishagion show up in this text. Verse 5 says, the devil took him into the holy city. Everybody say, holy city. He took him into the holy city. And then he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, which is the holy place. Say, the holy place. And then he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. That's the Holy Scripture. Say Holy Scriptures. He takes him to the holy city. Stands him up on top of the holy place. Recites the holy word to him and says, now let's see how strong you are. The enemy doesn't just get people in the wilderness. He gets them in the temple too. I'm trying to warn y'all. I'm trying to warn y'all. I'm preaching. Help me, Holy Ghost. Some of you missed God in church because you have forgotten that the devil comes to church too. You, you ain't listening to me here. Sorry. I'm trying not to be too graphic in my own preaching, but I didn't been in worship sometimes with my hands lifted up. Oh, yeah. And my mouth filled with praise. Y'all ain't ready. With the heart of thanksgiving, I will bless thee, oh. Lord. It just ruined everything. It just ruined everything. You come to church saying, I'm going to mind my business. I'm going to worship the Lord. And some off-colored person says something to you in the parking lot before you can get in the door. And when you get to church, you mad as Satan's little sister because somebody has come at you the wrong way. And you miss the fact that the devil don't mind you coming to church when he can come with you. 
He don't mind you getting in here when he can grab your attention from you. He comes to the holy place. I need to give one more word of application and I'm in my seat. Those of you who've been in church a long time, watch yourself. Watch yourself when you think you know enough Bible that you can sit outside while the preacher's preaching. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. I know you don't think I see you. But when your face is aglow with the ESPN scores while I'm preaching, because you're in church, but you ain't really in church, watch yourself when you think you know the next thing that's coming out the preacher's mouth. Because what you don't know is what the enemy knows. This ain't a dress rehearsal. This ain't for play. This is for real. And something that is said across this microphone from this book is going to save somebody's life. And it might be your life. Don't you get so theologically arrogant, so spiritually sophisticated that you feel like you can make it at that moment. He's got bait on a hook and he's got you. Can I tell y'all? I've seen people come to church decade after decade who the enemy has got. I've seen people sit on the front row and they are no more a child of God than a car is in a garage. I've seen it happen. And the thing that scares me is I don't want to spend 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years in church and not know God. I don't want to come to the end of my life and realize I had every opportunity to love God and to know him and to enjoy him, but I wasted it in church. Friends, the heart can become callous. Bruce Fields used to say to us that a cold mind, a correct mind rather, a correct mind is close to a cold heart. That the more learning you get, if you're not careful, you will, you will become cold toward God. But friends, I want to submit to you that the holy places are meant to warm you toward God. When was the last time? I ask this three, four times a year. When was the last time you cried in worship? No, y'all listen to me. When, when, when was the last time where the words of the song grabbed you more than the beat of the song grabbed you? When, when was the last time you were on your knees in believing prayer and you got the sweet assurance that God was with you and you couldn't get another word out because your eyes started to well up and even though things had not changed, you had changed. Don't you spend your years coming and going to church and not knowing and enjoying God. I'm done church, but I want to show you that this last temptation is the worst of them all. The enemy tries to distort scripture. He pulls out a phrase that, that ain't even, that's supposed to be there, that's not there in Psalm 31. But he figures I can get you Jesus because I know the reason for which you've come. And the reason for which you've come is to make the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. 
But how about we skip that whole Calvary thing? I know that that's the plan. You've known it since you were a boy working in your father's carpentry shop. When you were there cutting wood, sanding it down, polishing it. When you were fashioning tables and chairs to be sold in the marketplace, Joseph and Sons. You had a strange feeling then that as you carried that wood, one day that wood would be carrying you. You don't, you don't want to go to Calvary, Jesus. No, nobody wants to hang up naked in front of the world, bleeding and shame and ignominy. Nobody wants to do that. And you don't have to. Let's make a deal. Here's the deal, Jesus. One knee is all I ask. Bow one time and worship me. This, this is in the, Aaron, it's in the heiress, Jeremy, it's in the heiress, which, which means one moment. Not, in other words, he's saying, we ain't even got to make this long. Get down real fast and right back up and I'll give you everything you came here to get. Now this might sound foolish, and it is for a number of reasons, but let me submit this to you. He was the prince of the world. This, this, this has been his domain. And he's saying to Jesus, I got it. I could give it to you. As if though that he didn't have it on the lease. That, that he don't own it. It's just his for right now. And, and he says to Jesus, your work for God can be accomplished by taking the shortcut. And the temptation is to make the work God rather than serving God and doing the work. If he had bowed, he would have said the work matters more than the God of the work. But since he decided to do the work, he made a decision to honor the God of the work our temptation is to make our work God the work is a means to an end of glorifying God it's not God itself and what Jesus is saying is I can go through with the work because the God of heaven and earth is with me as he's commissioned me to do the work I'm done. I'm done. I didn't give you the secret. I just walked you through the temptations. Here it is. At every rip, Jesus replies to the devil, it is written. It's in writing. <laughs> Read it for yourself. You don't believe me? Here it is right here. The reason many of us cannot overcome temptation is because we don't have a relationship with the book. Over and over again, Jesus draws Satan's attention to the God of the book. He doesn't give in to the circumstance. He points to a devotion to God. Even when the enemy quotes a passage wrongfully, Jesus does not deny the passage. He just says, it's also written. 
it, it ain't just that part of the book. I'm in my seat. Bless your name, Holy Ghost. It ain't just that part of the book that matters. But you got to read the whole thing so that you don't cherry pick what you like. But the rest of it makes the tough parts better. I'm in my seat. May the Lord God bless y'all real good. I wish I had. I wish I could do it. I don't have the strength to do it. I wish I could do it. But I need y'all to hear me. We don't need any more cafeteria Christians in the local church. There's a podcast. Don't look at it. I'm telling you, stay away from it. It's called Cafeteria Christians. And there are many. You say, well, what's a cafeteria Christian? Charlie is learning about the cafeteria now. We let him go to school some days and pick up his own lunch. He said, Dad, do you know what's amazing about this? I said, what's that? He says, I get to eat what I want to eat there. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. I, I called it Janiqua as soon as he said it to me. What, what he was saying is, Dad, when I'm at home, you and Mama put stuff on my plate. And you make me eat everything that's on my plate. I don't always want this corn. I don't always want these green beans. He said, I didn't even want the dressing the other day. I don't want that. I want to eat what I want to eat. And when I get to go to school, I survey all of what's at the cafeteria. And if I want that, I get that. If I don't want that, I don't get that. I said, boy, you better be picking up some vegetables. I don't want that, Dad. What did you have to eat? I had some lemon cake and some chili. Really? Because that's the way the cafeteria works. Can I tell y'all that that ain't the way faith in Jesus works? You don't just get to pick the parts of the Bible you like. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You, you don't just get to turn to the page, in my trouble I cried out unto the Lord. You don't just get to turn it over. Uh, my God will supply all my needs and then leave the rest alone. This ain't the Thomas Jefferson Bible. This is the Bible of the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to take the other stuff that says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the enemy left him and the angels came to minister to him. I'm done. He'll leave you when you stick with the book. Stand up on your feet.